If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to the book of Galatians. It's Galatians chapter 3. And we'll be looking at the first nine verses of Galatians 3. It used to be said that people had different types of learning styles. This was an educational philosophy that was very important several years ago. These visual styles would be that you learned by visual means, so it was always good to provide pictures for people to learn from, or that you learn through oral or or hearing, that you learn through physical means or logical means or some other form of learning style. It seems as though that is actually not true. The more studies they've done it, the more that they've found that that's really not true. But there is one type of learning that seems to be universal for everybody, and that is experiential learning. You learn best how to do things by doing them. You can learn how to fix and repair a car or a computer by reading a book about it, but it's a much better way to learn by actually getting your hands dirty doing those things. And this works even for more mental tasks. The best way to learn math is to do math. The best way to learn science is to do science. The best way to learn how to write is to write. Some things can only be learned by experience. I remember my father telling me when I was young, how much he loved me, and I would say, I love you too, Dad, Um, primarily just to get away from him. Um, But he said, it'll be different when you have kids. And I know more about what my father meant when he said he loves me now because I have children, and it is indeed different than I expected it would be. Some things can only be gained by experience. Paul, as we have mentioned last week, begins his argument for the gospel without circumcision by looking at the Galatians' experience of the Spirit. And he argues here that the Galatians' experience of the Spirit should have taught them all they needed to know, that they shouldn't need to turn to circumcision because they have experienced the Spirit. They shouldn't have to think that they need to be part and parcel of the people of God through any other means but through faith in Christ because it is through faith in Christ that they gained the Spirit. So the question becomes for us, what can we then learn from the experience of the Galatians, what the Galatians had gone through and what the Galatians did go through? To do that, we will turn to Galatians 3. Begin reading with me in verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations are blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is the word of our God. The first thing we learn here is a little bit odd. We learn that we are not just experiencing salvation through the gospel by faith, but we also will always experience demons. There is an experiencing of demons here. Paul begins by saying, listen, 
I have vividly portrayed the gospel. I publicly portrayed the gospel, the crucifixion of Christ to you. This doesn't mean that he acted it out, and it doesn't mean that he just made it very clear to the public that Christ was crucified. It doesn't just mean a public notice, but it means that he vividly portrayed it. The only way that we would really be able to understand that is to think that what he did was actually explain the importance and the meaning and the significance of the crucifixion to the Galatians when he showed up. This is the job of all preaching. It is to explain what has happened and its significance. It's not enough for Paul to show up and say, hey, Jesus Christ was crucified. Believe in him. That carries no meaning, especially for Greek people who would have known of Roman crucifixion. Why trust in this man who was crucified? So when we read something like in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2, when Paul writes, When I came to you, brothers, when I came to Corinth, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This doesn't mean that he just showed up and said, Christ has been crucified. It does mean that the point of him showing up and speaking to them at all was to publicly proclaim that not only was Christ crucified, but that crucifixion matters for you. And so, there is significance to this. He expounds on the significance of this. The cross has a number of different significances. First, we know from Scripture and from others that It is meant to be an example for us, a moral example for us to follow, a subjective example for us to live out. For instance, 1 Peter 2, 20 through 25 says, For what credit is it if, when you suffer, when you, excuse me, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He bore himself our sins and his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He is an example for us. When we suffer, when we go through times of trial and temptation and difficulty, we remember that Christ has done it as well. And that when we go through those times, we can then do exactly what he did. We can entrust ourselves to one who judges justly. So that when we have unjustness put upon him, we have faith and trust that God will eventually make things right. This is the example of what Jesus says when he says, take up your cross. That only makes sense in light of the fact that he went to the cross. This does not mean that you're willing to stand up to Rome and endure crucifixion for it, but it is a call to be like Christ. As Paul will say later in Galatians in 6.14, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This is the ringing endorsement of Paul in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You are to do likewise. You are to follow Jesus even to the cross. He is an example for you. But he is not just an example of how we are to live. He's also an example 
of God love for us. So in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. It does mean that this is the manner in which God loved the world, but it is an example of God's deep and abiding love for human beings that he sends his son to die. Same thing with Romans 5.8. God shows, he demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is not just an example, though. The crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ shows his victory over the world. Christ has indeed overcome. Most of the book of Revelation is built off of this. The, the initial scene, the, the building scene in the vision of John in Revelation 5, 5, the climax of that vision, when he sees God holding the scroll but no one can open it, he's summoning people from the world to come and open the scroll and no one is able to, to open it. The will of God will remain sealed for all time unless one can come and open it. And the elders, while John is weeping because the will of God will not be carried out in the world, He sees one of the elders, and the elder says to him, Weep no more, for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus is victor Christus. He is the one who rules and conquers over the evil in the world. He is a redeemer for us as well. Galatians 1.4, we've read this, we've talked about it. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. He is a redeemer for us, but all of these, underlying every single one of them, is the fact that he has provided atonement for our sins. We already read of it in the passage in 1 Peter. In the passage in Philippians 2, it undergirds everything. You are an example of servant to one another. How did Christ serve us? He served us by giving himself on the cross. It is the idea of Christ providing atonement for our sins, of bringing men and women back to God. Paul is pointing in this direction. He gets to this, what we will cover next week in verses 13 and 14. Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He takes the penalty of our sin. He takes the penalty that is rightfully due us. This undergirds everything that we have spoken of. It undergirds the idea that he is an example, that he is a victor, that he is a redeemer. He is all of these things because he has taken our sin for us. So Paul shows up in Galatians and he proclaims the significance of this. But then he turns around and he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? The sum total of everything that Christ has done for us is the idea that that which we could not do, God has done. You provide nothing to salvation. God the Father has planned it. The Son has carried it out and the Spirit applies it to you. It is none of your doing. It is a gift of God that no one might boast. And because it is all a gift of him, some people are prone to think that all we have is good in the spiritual realm. We have God the Father who gives us good things. God the Spirit who helps us with good things. And Paul, perhaps although speaking tongue-in-cheek here, is not so sanguine about the fact that there are spiritual forces of darkness that work against you. He says that one of the works of the flesh in chapter 5, verse 20, is sorcery. He believes in dark arts. He believes that there can be bewitchings, there can be spells put on them. And he wonders openly whether or not part of the Galatians' difficulty in hanging on to the explanation and the significance that Paul has clearly given to the crucifixion of Christ is the fact that they have been blinded somehow. There are difficulties in this world 
you will be prone to them. There is an enemy of the people of God who roams around like a lion seeking to do all of the hurt and harm that he can. Perhaps that downfall will be moral. And he tries to bring you temptations that you cannot avoid. He tries to bring you temptations that you will be ensnared by. And in some cases, certainly here in Galatians 3, that temptation is nothing more than unbelief. Does Christ provide everything you need to not only be counted as a person of God, but to atone for your sin, to make you right and holy and righteous before God? This bewitching, the spell that has been placed on the Galatians, is one that comes from nothing more than Satan. So we pray for one another. Pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't think that, the, that Satan is there and that we can just avoid him by going through our everyday lives, but you need prayer. You are not stronger than him, although there is one who is in you who is. So pray. Ask God for help and assistance that you might not fall either into moral temptation or unbelief that you might hold fast to the cross of Jesus Christ, that you would put on the armor of God. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Your enemy is not the people of the world. It isn't political power in the world. Your enemy is one who wields strength behind the world. It is one who will bring temptation and who will bring doubt to you. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. There is spiritual depravity out there and it's not just in human beings. There are demons that want your ill. You must pray not only for yourself but for others as well. Secondly, he appeals to their blindness by this fact but he also appeals to the spirit. There is an experiencing of the spirit. There is an experiencing of the Spirit. We talked about this last week, but we do need to summarize here. First, the issue in Galatia was over the acceptance of circumcision for the marker of the people of God. And Paul emphatically says, you do not need this, and you know you don't need this because you have experienced the Spirit. How did you get the Spirit? How did you get the definitive marker of the people of God? Did you get it by doing works of the law, or did you get it by believing what was told to you? The answer is obvious. They believed what was told to them. They had experienced the Spirit. The Old Testament, as we looked at it last week, marks out the supplanting of circumcision by the Spirit as marker for the people of God. And this is affirmed strongly in times when the Galatians, or not the Galatians, but the Gentiles are seen as belonging to the people of God alongside the Jews because of nothing more than the Spirit falling upon them. Peter says two times, the Spirit fell upon them. I couldn't withhold baptism from them because God did not make a distinction between Jew and Gentile. The same Spirit fell upon them. They were on equal footing with us. And so because they have experienced the Spirit, they should know that they do not need to take on circumcision. This experience of the Spirit we talked about was primarily one of love, of a burgeoning and an emboldening of the love of God. It isn't 
taken up simply with power. It's not simply taken up with speaking in tongues. But as Paul relates, not only here and elsewhere, in Jesus' own words, the provision of the Spirit was to increase a love of God that people might not only love God and love the Son whom he sent, but they might obey his commandments. And that that love of God might be manifested in us in the way we treat one another and our love and our forgiveness and our compassion for one another and what's more, and our speaking and praising God with one another, the lifting up of songs. Further than the work of God and the experience of the Spirit leads us on. We do not then go back to the old way of things. We don't receive the Spirit for our justification and then go back to relying on the flesh, relying on the things of our own power to progress us in Christian faith, but we rely upon the Spirit for those things as well. This is the mark of the people of God that we experience the Spirit. Paul finalizes this section of his text by arguing that there is an experiencing of Abraham's faith. The Galatians are experiencing Abraham's faith. Part of the problem with arguing from experience is that experience are inherently subjective. I talked about how my father used to tell me that he loved me and that it would be different when I have children. And I can understand something of what he means by that, but I certainly can't understand all of it. My father's situation was different than mine. He, he was gone for months on end, working out of town, not because he, he left his family voluntarily. He had to leave in order to feed us. He, he oftentimes would then come back into town and work in town. And when he did work in town, he often worked nights. And so he was working at night and sleeping during the day. This is not my experience with my children. My father had two children. I have three. My father had me as a child. I have totally different kids who resemble me in a good number of ways, but don't in a good number of other ways. Our experiences are different. And while I understand more of what my father was saying to me, I do not understand it completely. His love for me was a love that I will never fully understand. And although that is so, Paul does note that the experience of the Spirit and how they obtain the Spirit, there is a consistency in it in biblical thought. There is something that can be shown to be sort of consistent, a thread that runs throughout Scripture that is part and parcel of this experience of the Spirit, although many folks in the Old Testament that we would consider saints never experienced the Spirit the way the Galatians did. And that experience is nothing more than faith. It's faith that he lists as the common link. Notice what he says here, just as. He says, the faith that you have is analogous to what Abraham had. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Every single person who has trusted in the Lord, every single person who is considered a saint, whether in the New Testament or the Old Testament, had this common experience. They trusted in the Lord. They believed in the word that came from his mouth. They banked their lives upon it. This is important because... We need to be, as he notes in verse 7, the sons of Abraham. This is the first time that sonship is really noted in the book of Galatians. Know then, he says, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. We can talk like this is such a new work of the Spirit coming into the New Testament that there provides almost no cohesion with the Old Testament, but Paul refuses to do that. While the experience of the Spirit separates us from the need of circumcision, at no point in time does Paul ever insist that you don't need to be a son of Abraham. No, he says emphatically, you have to be a son of Abraham. But it is the experience of faith that makes you a son of Abraham. 
Typically, when we think of sonship, we think of it as we've already talked about this morning, genealogical sonship. My kids are my kids because they share some of my DNA. My father is my father because he passed along his DNA to me. We think biologically about these things, and if not biologically, we think legally about them. My former pastor in Louisville is in China right now. He's meeting his new child for the first time. They're adopting today. Well, maybe it won't go through today, but they're meeting her in person for the first time today. And let it be known, when they leave China, she has absolutely no DNA ties to them besides what was probably passed on from Noah. She is their child. There isn't real kids and then adopted kids. She is their child, fully their child. She belongs to them. That is a legal understanding. It's a real understanding, but it's a legal understanding. But scripture often talks about a third type of parenting, a third type of sonship, a third type of being a child of someone, and that is a childhood of resemblance. I am not just my father because, or like my father, and I'm not my father's son simply because I come from his genes, nor simply because legally he's on my birth certificate and listed as my father. I am my father's son because I act a number of good ways and a number of bad ways a lot like my father. This is the way things are, and much more so back in the first century than they are now. Jesus was a carpenter, a worker of wood. Why? Because that's what his dad did. People didn't have upward mobility. You didn't get sent away to school to learn a different trade. You learned a trade at Papa's knee. That was part of what life was like. You were your father's son, not because you were related to him genealogically, but because you did what he did. You looked like he looked. You acted like he acted. It was very much an apple doesn't fall far from the tree society. This is true in a number of important ways for us. Listen to how Jesus speaks of his own relationship to his father in John chapter 5. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he, he had just healed the man who was blind on the Sabbath, or lame, excuse me, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So he healed somebody on the Sabbath, and you should note, when he, he does this through the Gospels, he always does this for non-essential matters. It's beautiful. He is, he is poking the bear as much as he can. So this guy comes in with a lame hand. That can wait till Sunday, but Jesus does it today. There were probably other issues in towns that he was staying in that could have been done on Friday, but he doesn't do it, and he waits until the Sabbath to do it. And so he is healing on the Sabbath. He's calling God his Father on the Sabbath, and the Jews realize what this means. He's making himself equal with God. Listen to how Jesus backs this up. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. You know what that language is taken from? That is not some sort of philosophical language for how Jesus has this vision of God healing people in heaven and then he can heal people all of a sudden. He's talking about, this is what fathers do. I learned how to make a table because I saw my father do it and I did it. He's he's telling you that this is the same relationship. The father-son relationships that you have when you teach your son something or you teach your daughter something, those kinds of relationships, they learn from you by watching you do it. 
Jesus says, this is the same relationship that I have with my father. It's how you know that I am my father's son. I do the very things that he does. I've seen my father work this way, and therefore I can work this way. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him, so that you will marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Jesus then, at a passage directly after the one that Pastor Doug read this morning, in John 8, turns around and says the exact same thing to the Pharisees who have charged his mother with sexual immorality. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Just as Paul has said, Abraham, you are sons of his by faith. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if Abraham were your father, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. That's what sons do. They act like their fathers. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear my word. You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and a father of lies. Why do you seek to kill me, he says, because your dad was a murderer before you. You are acting like your father does. And what Paul is saying here is those who are true sons of Abraham are not sons of Abraham simply because they've come from his loins, simply because they carry a remnant of DNA passed over a thousand years. It says you are sons of him because you did what your father does. Abraham believed. It was the mark of his life. He goes on to say, scriptures foresaw that God was going to justify the Gentiles by faith. When it said, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Scripture foresaw that the justification would be by faith and not by the law because it was in Abraham. Abraham who had no experience of the law. Abraham who only knew trust and belief in God. In what God had said and the promises that God had said. And so, because of that, it is those who resemble Abraham, who are true sons of Abraham, who walk like he walked and did what he did, that is, believe. That is the very nascent form of the gospel. It is not a full gospel, but it is the gospel all the same. We are in Abraham by doing what he does. He believes. His whole life is marked out by faith. As our scripture says, ending in verse 9, he is the man of faith. You are sons and daughters of Abraham, not because you carry a mark in your body, not because that mark is either external in circumcision or internal in terms of DNA. You are a son or a daughter of Abraham because you do what he did. You believed. That experience of belief is then matched by the provision of the Spirit. The work of the Scripture marks out that the provision of the Spirit will put a seal upon you as God's own people. If you live like Abraham, believing in what God has done and said, you will be saved, justified. 
Satan will no longer have any claim over you. The Spirit will empower you to resist him, enlighten you to know God, and enlist you in the mission of God. We don't need circumcision precisely because we are children of Abraham. We don't need circumcision precisely because we have what Abraham had, and that is faith and a righteousness provided to us through faith, sealed by the provision of the Spirit. We have all of these experiences, not because we have earned them, not because we were owed them, not because we have fanciful wishes about what God wants to do for us. We have them only because Christ was crucified for our sins. He was raised for our redemption, allowing us to know God and our salvation. It is the experience that Jesus has on the cross. It is the experience he has in giving his life as a ransom for many. It is the experience he has in being raised from the dead that clears us to experience and to know our own salvation through a provision of the Spirit and through believing in Jesus Christ. Friends, whether you have or have never in the past believed and trusted in Christ, I beg of you today, do so. If you believe in him Continue to believe in him. Continue in trust in the word that God has provided for you. If you have never believed in him and trusted in him, today is the day of the Lord's salvation. Trust that God has provided for you everything you need. He has done everything for you. Trust in the word that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. And you too will be saved. Let us pray. Father God, we are thankful for the gift of the Spirit that you have given to us. And we are thankful, Father, for the reception that you have for us, that we might be known as sons and daughters of Abraham because we have believed. We give you praise, Father, because this is not a work that we do of our own. It is a gift that you have given to us. And so we ask, Father, that you will be kind to us. Continue to bless us with the gift of faith. Continue to increase our faith. Increase our trust in you so that we might be fortified to withstand the devil, to see through his lies. And what's more, that we might be equipped to take your word out to the world, that others might hear and know of this gospel. We pray, Father, that you will help this experience embolden us in our witness, and that our hearts would be strengthened by your word. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.